Welcome to Cisco Champions Radio, Season 5, Episode 10. Today we'll be talking about Cisco Radio Resource Management, or RRM for short. Our Cisco SME today is Jim Forwick, and our champion hosts are Roel Dionisio and Francois Virgis. It's an honor to have Roel and Francois host today's call. As many of you might know, uh, they have their own podcast series called Clear to Send, and you can find that at cleartosend.net. Check it out when you get a chance. As for me, I'm Brent Shore from the Cisco Champion Program, and I'm your moderator today. Now, Jim, if you could introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your role at Cisco, that would be a great start. Yeah, thanks, Brett. My name is, uh, of course, Jim Florwick. I'm a technical marketing engineer with uh, Enterprise Networks and formerly the Wireless Network Business Unit. Uh, I got started with Cisco 2007 when uh, they purchased Cognio, which then became Clean Air. And with my background, I kind of just naturally dropped into RM and everything RF. Great. Thanks, Jim. Now, Roel, who are you, where are you, and what do you do? Sure. My name is Roel Dionisio. I'm actually in the Bay Area, not too far from Cisco. I'm a network engineer in higher education, and I actually deal a lot with RRM. Uh, I'll admit I'm not uh, an expert at RRM, so I'm glad we have Jim Florek on. Great. Thanks, Roel. And Francois, same question for you. Where are you, and what do you do? Hi, Brett. Thank you for having us on the show. Uh, so my name is Francois. I live in uh, Canada. I'm from France originally, and uh, I have my own business, uh, uh, my own Wi-Fi consulting business in Canada. So I do Wi-Fi consulting and, and Wi-Fi training. Great. Thanks, Francois. Now I'll pass the, uh, the mic over to Roel to kick things off and go ahead and get started. Yeah, sure. So one of the, I guess, the biggest things that we hear about with RRM is it needs to be tuned. I think that's an obvious thing that we don't want to use the defaults. But what, uh, my question for Jim is, what is the most common miscon misconception of RRM? Um, yeah, that's, a, that's an extremely good question. Frankly, it works very well in most environments, uh, enterprise, uh, higher education, except for some of the use cases where you definitely want to tweak uh, the parameters. But it works so well, I think people uh, rely on it, get used to it working, and then major network changes or technology changes or, you know, mission changes, density changes for an area, those things can drive uh, what appears to be instability. RM's not going to react instantly to it, one. Two, it's essentially an entirely new question. So I, I, tuning is, has been made simpler through the use of profiles, but that's still required. We, we just can't build defaults for every considerable use case. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Okay. And I think with the evolution uh, of networks, I've certainly seen increasing density in APs. We've got different uh, protocols coming into it. Those are all new questions that deserve to be asked. So. I think one of the biggest misconceptions is you can just keep plugging stuff in or changing and have RRM give you instantly a good solution. Um, we can talk about initialization and things like that later on, but that'd be, that'd be the biggest misconception. Mm. So it's not the magic uh, box, right? You have to tune it. <laughs> so it's, it's your own. Well, I, it's, it's an algorithm. Um, and I, I think, one side of it, RM is running a steady state network, right? 
So it doesn't assume you want to do something completely new. Um, and so anything like, like anything else, I think you need to tell it what your goal is and then allow the algorithm to start over fresh. Uh, one of the challenges, and I don't know, do you guys, you guys probably go back far enough. You remember every time you rebooted the controller, we'd get this uh, DCA startup algorithm running that would, would lock the controller down and run for 100 minutes or so. And that used to be with every reboot. But what, what that algorithm is doing at that point in time is throwing out everything it knows about the network, assuming it's a brand-new question, pulling in all the data and then answering that question without any of the uh, hysteresis or dampeners that we put in place for steady-state network. So that's kind of led to a little bit of trouble here recently. In 8.0, we stopped doing that every time you rebooted. Uh, we only do it now when you upgrade code. And uh, if you're making changes on your network, it's not truly a steady state. It's definitely something that you want to initialize when you've made changes. Uh, for instance, bandwidth changes. You decide overnight to go from 20 to 40 or from 20 to 80 or 40 to 80. However you do that, you're, you're parsing the channels up quite a bit differently. And uh, if you let RRM run in steady state, it will resolve that. It's going to do it very, very slowly as it moves things around to make it work better. Um, and that's because of the steady state dampening. And so is that when it's over time? Sorry, Ron. No, no. I was going to say, so it's, it's settling. The algorithm is just um, running and it just to have the, the state of the Wi-Fi settling over time. That's what you say? Well, I mean, in, in steady state, we assume certain things. Um, you, you guys have worked with uh, other radio resource management algorithms. We've, we've often said, uh, and we run DCA uh, channel and power about every 10 minutes. Wi-Fi is full of short-term, um, I guess, bursty nature, or, you know, you get a high throughput going for a little period of time. What you don't want to do in an enterprise or in a large network is start changing channels based on uh, an immediate input, right? Uh, because channel changes can be and are very disruptive. And uh, if you're changing channels frequently because of a small amount of input or, or change, uh, then you can get into trouble pretty quickly. So channel-wise, we are dampened. Um, when DCA makes a decision to change a channel, it's basing that on what we calculate as a cost metric. And that cost metric takes into account Rogue energy, R energy, uh, all of the inputs, noise, uh, interference, non-Wi-Fi interference, which uh, comes in as noise. And what we're looking for when we take a look at the channels and, and look at the individual APs off-channel situation, uh, where would be a better channel to put that? We're looking for a better cost metric, but under steady state, that's dampened by 10 dB. So if I make a channel change, it had to be at least 10 dB better, and that cost metric, really what that is is a compound signal-to-noise ratio. Does that make sense? Yeah, it's making sense. Okay. So that kind of dampening, um, if you make big changes, the algorithm may come down to where an AP says, well, there is a better channel over there, but it's only 9 dB better, right? Mm -hmm. So it's, it's running somewhat less than optimally. Yeah, and, and you could change that dampening. I, I believe that's a drop-down, but 
generally it's <coughs> by default it is 10 dB? It is 10 dB by default. You can, you can increase it. Um, here's always been my position on that. If, if I increase that uh, uh, to, a lower, um, to a lower dB value, I still have all the other dampening mechanisms in. For instance, uh, we, call, we have an algorithm called normalized cost cumulative uh, effect, or uh, NCCF. I can't remember what the F stands for right now. Basically, it's a goodness metric. Anytime I look at a cluster of APs that are known neighbors to one another, that is the measured value of the RF domain. That whole group gets a cost metric for its goodness. And then as we channel, uh, change channels in the simulation and look for a better channel for a single AP, that cost metric is, or that uh, cumulative cost metric is monitored. And the entire group needs to either improve um, or not change in its goodness value in order for us to implement that channel plan. So that even has a higher bias on it when we're in steady state, and that's not controllable. Okay. So you, you can increase it, um, and it will give you a little bit more volatility in channels. Yeah. The other thing, and, and this has really been the best practice that I've been preaching, I'm getting ready to uh, update the RRM guide. Um, the better practice is to simply kick off or initiate a DCA restart from the command line when you made a bunch of changes. And when you say a bunch of changes, what kind of changes would that be? Is it adding a, hat, like a, a ton of APs or changing uh, channel widths or adding more channels to the DCA algorithm? All of the above. Okay. So if you increase <laughs> density or you, or you change technologies or you, uh, you know, rip out a bunch of APs, anything that's a significant change to your RF landscape, even if, uh, for instance, you're on a campus, you do this in just one building, I'd recommend going ahead and doing it. It's, uh, it's essentially, like I said, wiping everything out and telling RRM to solve one problem, and that's getting those APs absolutely as far away from one another as it can. Okay. So let's say I do add a, um, a handful of APs to a building, then that means I need to initiate this DCA restart. Now, is this going to be disruptive if I decide to do this in the middle of the day? Um, will this, as it tries to make these channel changes, are users going to get kicked off and then join the network again once those channels make their, um, once the algorithm finishes its, its changes? If you've never done a DCA restart or since the last upgrade, let's say it's been running for, you know, six months without a reboot or anything, I would definitely wait for a change window. Um, same can be said for even if you haven't added APs, but you decide to change the bandwidth. That can get pretty volatile, um, and channel changes are going to kick people off of the radio. That's just going to happen. So, yeah, I'd wait till after hours. If it's been done recently, um, and we do this quite frequently internally in IT, if it's been done recently, kicking it off, you may see a couple, three channel changes, and that, that's about it. Either case, um, it tends to converge in about 30 or 40 minutes. It continues to run the simulations out for, you know, another 60 minutes after that, but volatility slows down quite a bit after the second or third iteration. 
Okay. Now, one of the uh, things that I'm curious about is I hear people say, okay, if you're going to implement RRM, you're going to use it, you should design with RRM in mind. Do you know what people are referring to when they say design for RRM in mind? Is there a specific design guideline if you're going to use RRM? Um, I know that's a, a question that I've been asked before. Yeah, I, and, and I can answer that. We, we cover site survey and design. Um, generally, I speak about that at Cisco Live. One, one of the things I, I see folks do, it pretty much, and, and I don't know you guys' personal view on design, but I, I step in and I find designs all the time, and it's usually driven by the customer. They strictly want coverage, and, and not even in a warehouse, maybe being a little short-sighted on, on capacity, but they strictly want coverage, and I step into a design that's got all the APs pushed up around 14 or 17 dBm. And certainly gives you coverage. RRM is going to operate best at about a medium power. It wants to be able to raise and lower the APs uh, power to bring a balance based on, on the patterns that it sees. So when I design for a network with RRM in mind, I'm usually running the AP power. Of course, I'm usually doing a high-capacity design as well, but usually running the AP power in the simulation somewhere between 10 and 11 dBm. You can get surprised. What's that? Uh, and that's for both uh, frequency bands, or are we talking only about uh, 5 gigahertz? Uh, 5 gigahertz. If I'm doing 2.4, I always have enough of those radios. Okay. Yeah, and that's interesting because in RRM, the defaults are, um, when you look at the TPC settings, it's uh, it's, a, it's a huge range, right? You've got a negative dBm value, and then it goes all the way up to 30 dBm. And I know that is one setting that I tune all the time, and I'll see that set default. Now, is that a pitfall, do you think, that people have when they turn on or when they have RM on and they're using it? Is that um, one of the areas you look at when it comes to configuration? Well, I, yeah, and I, I know exactly the area you're talking about. That's the transmit power control. Values. There's two things there. The uh, the TPC algorithm itself is set completely by a threshold, and and that threshold you'll see the minus 67 in there or 70. That value is where we calculate the cell edge to be, and what I'm really looking at there is my neighbors. So when TPC runs, it runs through the list of neighbors. It looks for by default the third loudest neighbor and where that neighbor is in relationship to that threshold determines whether it raises or lowers the power for that for that particular AP. Mm -hmm. Okay. Then there's a TPC min and max value and the difference in these is that TPC threshold value is a global value set on the RF group leader, the one controller that rules them all. Mm -hmm. That TPC min and max value is settable on every controller, and what that is is for a specific use case um, down to an AP group level where you want the power at a specific level and you don't want RRM to do anything with it. And, and I can give you a use case on where a good place to use that is. We uh, typically... Okay, so typically 
uh, think about your environment where you have an auditorium or, or some place that you've built out with extra capacity because the users are going to be very densely and, and closely packed together. So you put in extra channels, extra APs, build that extra capacity. When that room is empty, those APs can hear each other very, very well. In fact, they can hear the ones outside as well as the ones inside. And transmit power control is probably going to lower those APs power down all the way. There's nothing between them. <clears throat> However, when the room is full, you've got, we, I guess we're okay here talking RF terms. We think of people as water bags, right? So yeah. the floor is carpeted with the attenuators. I lose signal. I really, in actuality, I need somewhere about six to eight dB above where it cools down to in an empty room, uh, and that can go as high as 10 dB in some high-density situations um, where we, you know, have massive crowds. But that cooling off between busy periods bites you because that, that TPC algorithm is going to run every 10 minutes and it's going to raise it one power level every 10 minutes. So, for instance, in your case, if the class is held, could be 30, 40 minutes after the class starts until the power level gets up to where it really needs to be to penetrate that group. So if, we, if we're going back to the, to the design, you know how we do our RFI design? We use uh, design tools such as like a or um, mm -hmm. a wave and so on. And when you do those designs, your, those predictive designs, uh, they usually have um, uh, a feature where you can assign the channels automatically to your APs in your design. It's it's going to try to uh, you know assign those channels evenly across your APs so you minimize your uh, level of channel overlap. Uh, and we're we're able to get a sense on uh, of how uh, like how much channel overlap we'll, we can expect in the in the new design. Um, if you if you then implement RM, uh, we we could expect. Uh, these channels to be changed to something else, right? How do you validate this design? Do you go back on site and do an actual <coughs> validation survey on site and, and check the level of um, uh, channel overlap you, you get? Absolutely. Okay. That, is, that is the first thing that we do. And I'll give you a tip, too. If you're going to do a site survey, um, you do want to disable RRM while you're doing it. It makes it a lot easier to uh, to read that out if you don't get channel and power changes while you're while you're covering the survey. So you, so you would both, wait for it to settle and then dissolve it. Yeah, I mean, typically before you before you go, I mean, honestly, I do a DCA restart just about any time I'm getting ready to do something new on a network, and that gives me my best solution, right? And then okay. following that, you can freeze DCA and TPC. Um, so that it doesn't run anymore. It'll continue to run in the background, but it won't make changes. Okay. Then gather your data, unfreeze it, and let it go. Well, have you you've done a site survey? Have Have you ever gone back and found the same AP on two different channels? Oh yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you you sort you sort it out, but you never really feel good about it, do you? Yeah, yeah. I guess it's. Uh, I've never thought it that, that way, but it's actually. Yeah, it would be a good thing to just uh, freeze it for the time of the survey, and make sure you know no changes are made. It's easier to analyze your survey as well. Right. I always pull a show run config 
uh, at the same time that I do the survey. And then I've got a complete set of data. I can look anything up. I have to keep that in mind. Usually I do a, a surveys for, you know, I'm, I'm not the one configuring the box, but I'm the one doing the validation survey. Right. Uh, so I could, I, I could communicate that to, to the team configuring the, the controller. Yeah, it, it gets more interesting now that we live in an OBSS uh, overlapped, you know, BSS world. Um, yeah. With features like DBS that can drive, you know, bandwidth changes on the fly. And so, yeah, freeze, freezing that for the duration of the survey, I found to become increasingly more necessary. So we talked about RM, and RM is kind of like you mentioned, it's an algorithm. And um, I would go a step further and, and, and say it's, it's like the master algorithm. And then we have multiple um, other algorithms under RM, right? We talked about the uh -huh. TPC and so on. Um, let's talk a little bit about FRA. Uh, would you be able to introduce a little bit what it is? Uh, I know you guys came out with this new feature about two years ago. Um, uh, would you be able to just introduce it? And then we have a couple of questions uh, for you. Sure. Um, FRA, uh, we needed an algorithm uh, that was able to use the generated information from, from, and you're right, RRM is a full collection of algorithms. But the driver for pretty much everything is the neighbor discovery uh, protocol messages that go between APs. So we needed an algorithm to evaluate 2.4 gigahertz coverage based on the 38 and 2800s released um, with the flexible radio to be able to right size the coverage requirements and then offer up to other algorithms what they'd like to do with that XOR radio instead of, you know, in the old days, if you really build a network out for high capacity and 5 gigahertz, about 50% of your APs had to have 2.4 shut off if you wanted to get that to balance and be usable. So the algorithm was to replace that. Since the introduction of that algorithm, it's going on to serve uh, multiple other tasks, but it's proven reliable. So FRA is integrated into RM, and it's using information coming from the RF environment to make its decision, right? That That's correct. We set a... Uh, We've, we've got the neighbor relations between the APs. Uh, FRA is going to look specifically at a target AP and then up to four of that AP's neighbors. And the goal of the calculation is to measure the cell coverage of that AP in terms of a minus 67 dB cutoff okay. and then measure the surrounding neighbor's ability to overlap or completely cover that AP's cell. If I can do I that, that you go with four four neighbors instead of three. Um, the loudest well, because everybody needs a number, and that's the one we picked. Yeah. <laughs> I thought there's some magic uh, behind it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I know. There's only three channels less than two point four. Um, it may be the top four four neighbors. Uh, no, it is four neighbors. Uh, we can throw one out, and they all they all have to be uh, in the NDM. We're looking for APs that are strictly above minus 70. So if there's a long list, we take the loudest four off of that list. Okay. But we calculate that circle size, and then the coverage that's being supplied by, by the surrounding APs. It's a lot of math. And we develop a coverage overlap factor for the target AP. So 
if that AP's entire cell radius can be covered at 70, 80, 90 percent at minus six, at no lower than minus 67 dB by its neighbors, then the coverage overlap factor is 60, 70, 80 percent. And depending on where we set the FRA threshold, that radio will be marked as redundant, and a redundant radio is then free to be reassigned. Okay, and then when you say reassign, it could be um, servicing more clients on the five gig band and, and operate as a second five gig radio, right? Um, initially, when released, it had one one primary goal. It, it went to DCA, and DCA attempted to assign a second five gigahertz channel. Um, mm -hmm. If DCA determined that there was already too many five gigahertz APs operating um, and your channels were exhausted, for instance, 40 or 80 megahertz uh, bandwidth, didn't have enough channels to give this one a channel without creating a co-channel situation, uh, then it would be reverted to a monitor role. And in monitor role, you're still getting whips, um, you're getting location, you're getting all the good things that you get from a radio just sitting there listening, which is still better than shutting off that 2.4 gigahertz radio and saving it for some future use. So now it becomes a challenge to design for FRA, right? Because you're never going to know what the controller will end up uh, yeah, doing. With it, adds so much, it adds so much complication, I think, with the addition of FRA. I mean, I, I really like the feature, but it does yeah, add complication on top of our... I thought I, well, there's, there's a point where I thought I, would, I was really starting to understand RM, and then FRA gets thrown in there. I'm like, okay, so how should I, how should I approach this? Um, what values should I set for my environment? Uh, those thresholds, those those numbers and knobs that we should change in order for to provide a, a functioning network and not stab myself and create a bigger problem than I wanted to. Yeah, if you don't mind, let me walk you through the, and believe me, I thought I understood RRM2 until we introduced FRA. I had to go back to the engineers multiple times <laughs> asking questions. Well, you know, it's one of those subjects, right? Somebody gives you an explanation and your, your head's full and you say, okay, and you walk away and about an hour later you say, hey, wait a minute. <laughs> yeah, what about this? <laughs> right, yeah, I, I I give somebody a good brief, you know, rundown of RRM. The next time they call me, their question got better. I know it. <laughs> so, <laughs> RRM and FRA. FRA is simply solving a problem you already have if you built a network out at 5 gigahertz. Um, so, when you design a network today, and let me ask a question. Are you designing primarily for five gigahertz, and then you work out 2.4 after the fact if it's if it's required, or yeah. are you designing for 2.4? Because the, the way you have to do it today is designed for five gigahertz coverage and capacity. Mm -hmm. If you do that, in most modern environments, I, I would venture to say a 3,000 square foot cell is actually large. Yeah. So, and and. What is that, 280 square meters? Try, trying to be kind to my Canadian brothers. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, you know, we're seeing densities now 2,500 and below, I mean, down to about 1,800 square feet. That's starting to get really dense. 2.4 gigahertz with three channels, I mean, that 
you require about 10,000 square feet of space to, to start reusing 2.4 gigahertz. So we've got an enormous number of 2.4 gigahertz radios out there. Before FRA, every one of them came up, and until somebody complained about 2.4 and you complained about the fact they hadn't updated their handset, um, there's a problem there already. You'll, you'll see the channel utilization being very high. If somebody gets on on channel 6, you'll see the five radios on channel 6 around it ringing with high channel utilization. So FRA doesn't really complicate RM. It actually gives you a tool, and you don't have to run FRA. Uh, in fact, the radios, when installed on an FRA platform up until 8.6, the default state for the R uh, for the FRA algorithm is off. Mm -hmm. Okay. So the radios are enabled, and and at the radio level, there's an auto or manual selection that says yes, I am at the mercy of FRA. No, I am not. So at the command line, if you're concerned about what FRA is going to do, you can run a single command: config, advanced, 802. or uh, config advanced, FRA revert, and then there's a couple of options. You can do all, just the auto ones, but you can revert all of the XOR radios on the system with a single command back to manual mode, and then you can run FRA to your heart's content and get the output. So basically, it will build you a list of your most overly covered 2.4 gigahertz APs, and then you as an administrator can go take a look, and this is, I recommend doing it. I'm a kind of a hands-on kind of guy, I guess you would say, I'm probably not taking my hands off the steering wheel of a car anytime real soon, but <laughs> <laughs> it comes from a lifetime around computers and bugs happen, so we validate. Um, and then go take a look at your maps and, and evaluate the job that FRA did. Use it as a guide to manually disable or do something with. Okay. Does that make sense? Yep. Yeah, when I, when I design for 2800 to 3800s, that's usually what I do. I I I, pr I pretty much do my design on 5 gigahertz, and I come back with 2.4, and I disable a whole bunch of 2.4 radios. And then with the radios I've disabled, I either uh, use them as monitor mode or as a second 5 gig radio to uh, if I need the capacity and and handle more devices. Mm -hmm. I have to tell you, one of the things I walk into now, people get excited that they can have dual 5 gigahertz, right? Mm -hmm. So I've seen a trend where they finally get their management to sign off on, they don't even have to support 2.4 uh, gigahertz. Have you guys ever had that pleasure? I don't even uh, get a sign off, I just do it. <laughs> Good man. Uh, I had the last, yeah, the, the last design I, I did, the customer told me 2.4 is best effort. I was like, okay. Okay. Sure. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, there's some good use cases for it. Um, yeah, they're different. And then yeah. some. Sometimes the use cases is just ingrained in the culture, right? Uh, if you actually take a look at the number of radios, uh, almost all of the radios that are connected to 2.4 are dual band uh, or dual band capable, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. um, so we see all kinds of reasons. I'm a well, and that's a separate subject, but. Uh, as far as FRA goes, using it as a guideline, the wrong thing to do is to disable it and then automatically assume that you can flip all of your interfaces to 5 gigahertz 
because that's going to be a great choice right up until you run out of channels, right? Yeah. Yeah, because you can't just put them on any 5 gigahertz channel. There is a separation that you need to have between uh, your primary 5 gig and then the FRA radio 5 gig. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then you have the choice of 20, 40, 80, 160 megahertz bandwidth. You well, kind of have to learn how to do that. Yeah. yeah. That all goes back to design and how you're going to design for your wireless yeah. network. But that's, I, I guess that's, I shouldn't assume people should know, but I, I do run into situations where people are using the higher uh, channel bandwidths and then they have problems because they are in a higher density area and or maybe they haven't put in enough APs for the capacity. And so there's a lot of OBSS as well by surrounding uh, neighbors. And I think this is where a lot of people think RRM is supposed to save them. But uh, I think of RRM as a tool to help you try to solve some of these problems to try to get to a better uh, uh, posture on your wireless network. But you have to understand how RRM actually works in order to get to that point. Uh, you know, that's consistent criticism. And I've, I've heard it, uh, even talked to a couple of the folks that said it, and there are folks that they would prefer to do their own channel plan and power. Uh, they feel they do a better job at that. Um, it's static at that point. And RRM does a very good job of, of managing a dynamic environment once you've got it tuned or told it what you want out of out of the sub-environments. Mm. But uh, you you do have to learn how to drive the algorithm. It's not like just looking at the map and applying yeah. some patterns. Uh, RM is actually very predictable. Um, you know, it's the devil I know. So uh, if, it, if it does something that I don't agree with, uh, generally there's a reason it did it. If I can identify that reason, we can work around it. Yeah. And I've even seen one of those reasons being the positioning of the access point. I've seen all the APs down a hallway and RRM kicking in, and it can hear every single AP very clearly. Oh, yeah. And so oh, yeah. then it brings down the transmit power. So that use case that you just mentioned, that hallway use case, we find that so often in hospitals, um, you know, through the evolution, they're installed in the hallway. You guys ever seen what it takes for a hospital to open a ceiling and move an AP? Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, somebody walks in off the street and doesn't understand what they're about to say and says, hey, you just have to move your AP. Yeah, well, at five grand to move, that's going to add up pretty quick. It's usually twice the price of the AP. That's what they it, it yeah. absolutely is by the time you put the clean room around it and it's an operating hospital. Um, and the same could be said in higher education. I mean, you just... Some of the buildings are older. You have to core drill to get into the side room, right? Yeah, that's, so that, that's what I run that, into all the time on campuses. We have places where we just can't put the AP there. It's just right. This. Well, I mean, and that is a result of the changing technologies. 802.11a and b penetrated just fine, right? Well, a not so much as b, but 2.4 gigahertz definitely goes through a wall much better. And now that we're up into multiple spatial streams and the type requirements for signal to noise ratio to get the better benefits, you, you need to get the AP closer to the people using it. 
Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then with the increased amount of devices, then that doesn't bode well with the devices also because then if you're dealing with this AP that's not near the users, everyone's trying to compete for that airtime and they're they're communicating at a lower data rate. They're getting a lot of retries. And I think sure. this is where, where, yeah, like you said, it needs to be closer to the users. And then that's where I think RRM can be to your advantage as long as you, I, I, that's how I see what people mean when they say design for RRM in mind is because of knowing how these algorithms work, you can try to put it into the favor of RRM, right? As long as you design it or position the APs where they should be and not say all in the hallways or hidden in the ceiling with the HVAC or behind metal or aluminum. It's also related oh, to the type of uh, antenna you use. Uh, one day I troubleshoot a warehouse where they had omnidirectional an antennas uh, up in the ceiling yeah. so all APs could see each other very well and RM was tuning down the power and then on the floor they didn't get much uh, signal So and we just changed the antenna from omnidirectional to directional, semi-directional. And, and we left RM on and it, it, it was working fine afterwards. Uh, see, so it, the yeah. two ways to approach that uh, you could have used TPC min and max there to increase that power output. You'd have probably had co-channel problems at the AP level because they could still hear each other. Mm -hmm. um, but the directional antenna, that then sends that neighbor message out that antenna off the floor and then up to the other APs. You're getting a realistic picture of the environment then. That's a good point. So does does RM works differently with directional antennas, or do we need to tune it differently? And I'm thinking about like, you know, in the warehouse you always have like this office section, and then the the warehouse itself. Uh, would you would you have like two sets of configuration for RM for those two different environments, or how do you approach generally these? Yeah. Yeah, and and well, so let's go down the use case of that office environment versus the warehouse environment. The warehouse environment is usually very low user density, right? I, it's, they need the coverage in there, but they never have a more than two or three clients, maybe four clients on a single interface at any point in time. Yeah. Office environment, on the other hand, may be in the process of going completely wireless. You got QoS concerns, higher density of users, higher volume of traffic, so it's more of a more of a high density than a coverage model. So that's the, the, the two models the way I see them. And I would always put those APs in different groups just so I have the ability to tune one against the other or change those parameters. If I don't put them into AP groups and I don't, even if they run on the default RF profiles, then they are running the same on the global level and anything I do to one, I got to do to the other. And with two different use cases, it doesn't seem likely both are going to need it. So AP groups, um, will they uh, will RM take into consideration information coming from both AP groups, or is it localized per AP group? It's localized per AP group. The overall effect, we know between AP groups how well we hear other APs, and we're aware of the AP groups that they're in and their, their constraints for configuration. So RRM is looking at more and more complex information and making compromises, it is possible to configure two AP groups right next to each other 
and get an RM solution that is just too much of a compromise because you don't have the isolation. Does that make sense? Yes. Okay. So we also have to take that into consideration when, when we configure our APs. Well, I, you want to look at, look at how coupled they are because a lot of times this comes back to a design problem, right? Um, AP placements, I like to see placements of APs very even. If you have two different use cases, for instance, classic example, inside of a college lecture hall, the outside hallway is a common area that certainly gets a whole lot of traffic, but not a lot of density and, and committed users. Those two areas, very different missions, very different configurations, they can hear each other, right? But the good news is when the lecture hall's in, in operation and has, say, 500 bodies in it, it's not listening to the network outside the room. It's only when that's the reverse. So placement first. In, a, in an environment like a lecture hall right next to a common area, you probably have got omnidirectional APs out in the common area uh, or in the hallways. It's not a bad idea to go some directional antennas out there. Uh, with a directional antenna, you can put that right up against the backside of it towards the lecture hall. Better coverage of the hallway, you don't interfere in the lecture hall, and you isolate the two areas from RF from each other. And that's different from, that doesn't matter if they're in the same AP group or not. It, it doesn't. I mean, this is just a matter of managing your channels uh, okay. and keeping your interference out of each other's, you know, area. Now, is there um, uh, a disadvantage if you've got uh, AP, different model APs and you're using RRM, they're in the same office building, does that affect the RRM algorithm at all? Like if you're running 2800s no. and you still got 3500s? No, no. The uh, the controller actually pulls back the regulatory requirements and the model number and everything else from each AP individually. So when I see a neighbor message from an AP, I already know, for instance, if you had dash A and dash B, uh, most recently got those channels back from the uh, TDWR uh, with the dash B regulatory coming in here about two years ago. Mm -hmm. RM knows which channels you can have and it works that into the solution. So it's very aware of, of the models. Mixing APs, uh, salt and peppering through the middle of a room, just as an old troubleshooter, I just hate to do that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, there shouldn't ever be a problem. Uh, backward compatibility in 802.11 is, is pretty good, particularly now when you start talking wave one and wave two APs. Um, if you went from 802.11a only to 802.11n, well, that's also different client technologies being involved in that. And if you had a weird roaming problem or something like that, it's just going to be painful to troubleshoot. So I just avoided it altogether. Okay. So, Jim, the, the big question, what's next? What's uh, the new RM features that you guys are working on? Well, uh, 8.5 saw the release of the client-aware feature, and this is, again, based in FRA. Uh, but the use case of... If I have a radio and monitor role, can I detect when I get a flash mob underneath my AP and bring that up? Yes, you can. Mm -hmm. uh, the other thing is assurance. Go ahead. No, I think that's a, that's a nice feature right there. It, it is a nice feature. Uh, and then an 8.7 um, DNA center assurance, the, uh, the sensor modes 
uh, are coming out. So FRA has already been built uh, and tested. We can actually calculate using that same algorithm that we're doing with FRA. You as a customer may have a higher priority for sensor placement. Well, we can actually measure the network and how well we can reach other APs based on the same uh, calculations that we did for 2.4. We can do this at 5 gigahertz and identify APs that could be available to DNAC that do have coverage from other APs that we could enlist as a sensor. Um, so that is in there, and it actually gives the customer the ability to say, hey, look, all the way down client preference. I don't ever want to mess with a client. So it's going to give you a minimal amount of sensors, but you can adjust that all the way up to sensor priority if you're trying to troubleshoot a really bad problem and it's not working to begin with. Uh, you can dedicate the max amount of sensors and all that's doing is changing that minus 67 dBm cell edge. And we run that all the way out to minus 79. So those are integrated in there. I think more automation, um, you know, if I took a look at where we are right now with RF tuning, every environment, I mean, you, I, we're all forced to build for the worst case scenario, right? And then tune the network for that because if the worst case scenario happens, if we get the massive, you know, throngs of crowds, it's got to operate there. But that's not necessarily the optimal configuration for the day-to-day. -day. Um, I like to call it the Black Friday effect. Mm -hmm. uh, and we get a lot of this in retail, too. So people will say, well, we're going to have a grand opening there. There's going to be 12,000 people in that space that's normally designed for 800, right? It's got to be able to work. I'm getting ready to build you a network for 12,000 people when your daily requirement is 800 people. There's going to be a few dollar sign differences. Yeah. <laughs> so from a configuration standpoint, um, Telemetry is the watchword. I, I think of uh, I think of it like when an automobile finally got computer ignition, and uh, we'll actually be able to start measuring some of this stuff in real time. Of course, the crushing amount of data has always been the obstacle to that, but I think the platforms are getting good enough now and powerful enough that we should be able to get a consistent series of data. And I'm looking for more conditional configurations, but RM is going to be a big solid part of that. How does that algorithm, uh, not the algorithm, but the interval play in with making those automatic changes, those on-the-fly stuff? So like you said, when there is a, a large high-density crowd that's about to appear, uh, I know there's an, there's an interval that you could set for these algorithms. Mm -hmm. Will it follow that interval? Or if it knows there's um, somehow gets this data and says, all right, now I see high density, high capacity here, I should make a change with this FRA radio. How does that play together with, the, with that interval? Um, well, I mean, we can take a look at client aware real quick as the threshold. We're monitoring the serving radios uh, channel utilization. Uh, and we set a threshold of when that utilization is exceeded. Now that runs across a 90 second histogram. So we're buffering that for 90 seconds and looking for a trend, right? And then we can bring that second radio online. The interval DCA running every 10 minutes, that's normal channel maintenance. So we've got uh, a bunch of examples that don't wait for DCA to run but actually trigger on an event 
and then we know DCA is going to come running along behind it. So, for instance, in the uh, example of client aware, the radio, the second five gigahertz, that's XOR radio, is operating a monitor role because DCA already evaluated it and said, we just don't have enough channels. But there's a threshold that DCA cuts that off at. Mm, okay. In the on-demand uh, example, once we exceed that channel utilization, we force that XOR radio up in the five gigahertz, give it the best channel assignment we can at the time, and then DCA is going to come in behind it and move things away and, and around it. So I think the interval is always going to be there. What we can do or what we can trigger to in response, um, the way we've implemented that in the past, it'll be a conditional response, and then that regular interval will come through and clean up whatever mess that created. Okay. Yeah, because I was curious if, let's say, you had a long interval, say, every six hours, that it wouldn't react to those kind of situations. But that's good to hear about that client aware. Well, right now, it wouldn't run for six hours, and it wouldn't clean up the mess for six hours. So you could yeah. potentially <laughs> have a mess running. I'm, I'm a big fan. Uh, in, in my world, I, I find out why RM does what it does. Uh, and we're, we're working very hard to make that easier. Um, if you know that and you're in a steady state network, you really just shouldn't have a lot of channel changes. And I've seen a lot of people extend that DCA timer to avoid those channel changes. Uh, but if we actually drove into the core of the network and found out what was going on, we could probably, you know, adjust a few things so that we just didn't have those channel changes and, and DCA ran every 10 minutes and everybody was happy. Okay. Hey. We've got about eight minutes left here, and there's a couple of questions in the chat if we have time to answer them. Um, the first one here is uh, from Frick uh, uh, Tertstra, and again, I apologize for butchering your last name, um, but it says here, from what I've been told, a lot of customers use default global RRM TPC settings. Why not change this to more default common, to a more default common range? Uh, for example, 10 to 14 uh, DBM for 802.11 BG and N and 14 to 17 DBN for 802.11 AN and AC. So, so and I, I never got back to that. This is my fault, uh, fault role. Um, when we first talked about TPC V1 uh, or the min and max settings, that minus 10 DBM and that plus 30 DBM, those are off. We don't have a radio that can go to minus 10 or to plus yeah. 30. So that's off, and that is strictly as an override. Uh, the default value should be TPC version 1 turned on, and then it should be an auto-settling uh, algorithm. Um, so the only, the only good use cases for the min and max or to override what the algorithm is calculating should be for specific areas or use cases, such as a warehouse where you've got omnis on the ceiling or all the APs lined up in the hallway because the algorithm is using that AP to AP measured distance to set the power level. So we, we, the default values of minus 10 and plus 30 is off. TPC is handling all the power level assignments, and they should be in that range. Um, in fact, there's a... That's your override. You can put the values between... Precisely. 10 and plus 30. Got it. Precisely. Uh, another question from the audience here, from Brad Haynes. 
general question for Jim, uh, for RRM data collection, what do you collect, what is relevant, and what stories do you have from something you found that may have raised an eyebrow or was an aha moment, uh, for example, a rogue device? <laughs> I get lots of horror stories, and that's an entirely other show, Brett. Okay. Give <laughs> me one brief example uh, of, what, of what you look for and what you collect. What I collect, um, and you can do this really well from Prime 3.3. First off, if RM's doing its job, right, then I should have channels that are isolated, and all of my APs are isolated between one another, right? I shouldn't have two APs sitting right next to each other on the same channel. And if I do, that's an indication to me that maybe we're not feeling as well as we thought we were. Mm. Prime Maps in 3.2, it was introduced. You can drag your mouse cursor over any AP and you can see the neighbor relations to every other AP. And what I'm looking for, generally in an office space, I make the cut at about minus 70. And anything that I can hear at or above minus 70 should not be on my channel. Um, it's within my, my radius, and we're going to impact each other for channel utilization. Uh, the other great tool that I use, and this is dirt simple, uh, if members haven't gotten a hold of uh, in the support communities and the support forums, you can get a, a copy of the WLC config analyzer and the output of a show run-config file has every neighbor relation, uh, both transmit and receive, that every AP hears. What that does is it tallies it up. It gives me a real nice output. Uh, for instance, in 2.4 gigahertz, the number of radios assigned to channels 1, 6, and 11. And it's never going to be exact, but that should be even-ish, right? So yeah. I'm looking for 30-ish percent across all three. If I look and I've got channel one that's got 60% of the radios on it, there's a problem. Um, is it RRM or is it an environmental problem? That's when you, you start asking the deeper questions. So, but there's a couple of really nice things in there. You can, uh, the RF index, uh, RF problem finder, the RF health algorithm is getting, getting better, but it all comes down to the number of channels and the isolation of the APs because you can only get the benefit of a channel if you aren't sharing it with another on the same channel. Thanks, Jim. Now, I didn't mean to hijack this over here. Um, Roel and, and Francois, you have three minutes if you want to ask some additional questions or if you've got uh, something you want to close with. Um, I'd like to close with, like, Jim, what are your what are your the th like three big things someone should take away with, with using RRM? Um, three big things. Once I have to say, RRM does a great job of optimizing what it sees, and placement design of the network is crucial. If uh, and and you guys know this from your design work. It, it can be very difficult to guide change if somebody has been doing something a certain way. And the reality is we're increasing density and the number of users. Um, in those situations, sometimes replacing the APs or moving all of it is the best answer. If, for instance, they're still trying to use the same cable that they were using for the 802.11b days. 
So placement's number one. Number two, RRM's health. And the number one use case is, and remember I said that DCA restart only initiates after a code upgrade or used to be just when the controller rebooted. Classic use case, we go in overnight, replace all the APs, rip and replace. The controller's been up and running and has finished the DCA restart and then we plug the APs in. Uh, so remembering to reinitialize or tell DCA, now I want you to answer this problem, um, saves so much woe. Uh, and then number three, reasonable expectations. Uh, you can tell RRM to do 80 megahertz channels everywhere and you can limit it to five channels. It's gonna give you the most optimized solution under your parameters it can, uh, but it's still going to be a bad experience that's highly optimized. <laughs> yeah, I can see that, yeah. A highly optimized bad situation, I like that. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you can't get mad at the algorithm then, can you? <laughs> so with these things, these channels and things like that, this is getting very complex. It's my uh, my sincere hope, and I'm, I'm working with folks. Uh, these things are going to change before I retire. I, I promise you we're just going to start analyzing it the way the rest of the users perceive the network. So it's a good time to be an RF. Awesome. Well, thank you for sharing your insight and knowledge on the RRM topic. Thank you, Jim. Oh, guys, thank you. Thank you for inviting me out today, and it was a real pleasure talking with both. Yeah, yeah well, thank you, Jim. Um, and I'll go ahead and close out at this point. And if you all want to stay on the line afterwards and chat for a few, uh, feel free. Um, but this has been Episode 10 of Cisco Champions Radio Season 5. I want to thank all of you for joining us today, and especially Jim for sharing his insight, and Roel and Francois for hosting today's session. As always, thanks to everyone for joining and participating. Looking, look for this episode and other awesome episodes on blogs.cisco.com slash perspectives. I'm Brett Shore, today's moderator. Tune in next week. And in the meantime, we'll see you in the Twitterverse at Cisco Champions. Until next time. Uh -huh.